Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. If you look at the Harvard Business School effort I've been involved with in preparing impact-weighted accounts, you can look at 3,000 companies now and their environmental impact from their operations. And you discover that 450 of them create more damage than profit every year. A thousand of them create damage equivalent to a quarter of their profit, right? Two-thirds create damage of less than a quarter of their profit. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can changing the world and making a profit go hand in hand? My guest today believes that to survive, every business will need to incorporate what he calls impact initiatives into its business model. So please make him welcome, Sir Ronald Cohen. Thanks very much for joining me today. Great pleasure, Phil. So, Ronald, you started life out as a refugee fleeing Egypt with your family and rising to the top of the venture capital world before realising that you wanted to do more to help the world. So tell us a little bit about your background, which I believe started um, in Alexandria just before the Suez crisis. My mother started in Alexandria before I was born, but I was actually born in Cairo, Phil. Oh, okay, yep. And you're right, we were expelled from Egypt in May 1957, following the Suez crisis, which um, occurred in November of the previous year. And we ended up in the UK. I mean, the Jewish uh, refugees uh, lost Egyptian nationality when they left Egypt and ended up where people would welcome them, some of them in Australia, some in Brazil, some in Canada, and some in the UK and France. And uh, my mother had a British passport, and we ended up in, in the UK. And the UK welcomed me, and I went to a state school where I met an inspired um, teacher, Richard Farley, bless him, who said to me, Cohen, you should go to Oxford. And he prepared me for my Oxford entrance exams, and, and thanks to Richard Farley, I got into Oxford. Uh, incidentally, I looked for him for years afterwards, and eventually I found him 40 years after uh, I left uh, Orange Hill Grammar School and had the privilege of knowing him for a few years before he passed away. He was a really wonderful man. And from Oxford, I got a scholarship to Harvard Business School, and I felt I'd been helped, and I want to help others uh, in my turn. My family values reinforce that. I was brought up to think that if something wonderful happens to you, then you have to share, you know, with others less uh, less well off. And that's where you um, got involved in venture capital. And um, I believe at the time you thought that you could instigate change by being involved in venture capital. And it was during the time of the tech revolution. Yes, I was at Harvard Business School from 67 to 69, more than 50 years ago now. And this was just the very beginning 
of thinking about entrepreneurship, new technologies, the microchip had been invented, people differed about how far uh, this would go. Some people thought it would change the computer industry, and they, they did, you know. And of course, uh, you know, I only had an intuition that this would go a lot further than that, that it would be natural for young people with innovative ideas to be able to do better than big companies with all their received wisdom and uh, all the inertia that goes with uh, decision-making in big companies. And so I decided that uh, going into venture capital was the perfect thing for me. It gave me the opportunity to be financially successful, which I needed to be in order to look after my parents who would have no pension and, and so on. But it also was a way of creating jobs in the UK at a time when there were millions unemployed. So venture capital, can you explain a little bit about how it works and um, what it means for the companies that are being invested in? Yeah. So venture capital is about identifying somebody with a great idea and the skills to execute it and turn the idea into a successful business. Now, it sounds very high risk to, you know, to the average person, but we used to say if you jump over a precipice a hundred times without falling, is it really risky? And what I discovered very quickly was if you were good at picking talent and if you were good at estimating what was a reasonably good, you know, excellent idea, then 20% of the companies you invest in would fail. But 20% would also hit the ball out of the park and you make very attractive returns from them. And then in between, you'd have the whole range of returns from almost losing it to almost making it. And so venture capital, which started out looking like a very minor addition to investing, ended up being fundamental. It uh, not only funded the entrepreneurs who brought us the tech revolution, the PC or the software that went with it, you know, the cellular phone, and then the internet, and on and on from there. But it also created a change in our lives, which I like to think has been, despite all the challenges, a big change for the better. I think what you might be referring to there is how the technology has allowed so many people to understand what's going on around the world and to feel closer to people in situations that aren't as well off as some of us in the first world. Uh, absolutely. We're connected in ways that we've never been able to be connected before. We empathise, especially the young generation, with people in far-flung places and we have access to information about every subject and access to education now, access to medical services, uh, even if we're in remote places. So I think there are three major forces now, Phil, of which technology is one, working to improve our world. What are these three forces? So one of them is these leaps in technology machine learning, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, the genome and uh, computing coming together. 
enable us to deliver impact, as I call it in my book, in ways we could never do before. The other two major forces are a major change in values. Uh, so the millennial generation and the Gen Z, which has uh, followed it, shifted away from buying the products of companies that create harm, right? Climatic harm or using child labor and so on. And they refused to work for these companies. That became obvious to investors who were also being pushed in the direction of doing good and doing well by their clients, by their pension savers, and so on. And today, you have $40 trillion. I mean, this is almost half of all professionally managed money that is seeking to achieve some positive impact as well as making money. And the third force is one which is going to revolutionize our world, and it is being able to measure the impacts of companies. So you'll be able, just uh, two, three years from now, you can begin to do it now, but as I'll explain, we don't have total comparability of data, but you can begin to compare companies' impacts now. How much damage do they create environmentally from their operations, for example, Phil? How do they contribute to increasing diversity? What's the cost of exclusion that they bring to society and the differences in equality of pay between gender and ethnic groups and so on. And finally, what are the impacts they deliver through their products to improve health, to improve uh, lives in different ways and to improve the environment. Now, you take these three forces together, technology, changing values, and being able to compare the impacts of companies. And you can see it's actually shifting the way we do business and the way we invest. So just before we go on to talking about um, impact investing and what's going on here, you mentioned the genome before, and you were involved in the company that cloned the first sheep, Dolly, weren't you? I was. Was that a good investment? No, um, it was a good investment for humanity because it uh, crossed the milestone in our scientific knowledge. But uh, we lost all our money. Having said this, it's the only company in our portfolio that uh, was picked as one of the most influential 100 companies of uh, the 20th century. So it did its bit for scientific progress. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting back now to impact investing, I think a lot of people, when they think about um, what we're talking about today, look at ESG and that you can invest in ESG funds that they believe will have the outcomes that they feel that they're looking for. But you're suggesting something a little bit further than this, aren't you? So ESG investing 
which is now 40 trillion plus, as I was saying, ESG investing has the intention to deliver impact, but it doesn't measure it. Because up until now, we haven't had the tools to measure the impact of a big public company. Okay? But we've developed the tools in the last two or three years, and it's now feasible and valuable to use impact accounting and to compare the impacts of companies in dollar terms with their profits. So if you look at the Harvard Business School effort I've been involved with in preparing impact-weighted accounts, you can look at 3,000 companies now and their environmental impact from their operations. And you discover that 450 of them create more damage than profit every year. A thousand of them create damage equivalent to a quarter of their profit, right? Two thirds create damage of less than a quarter of their profit. And so you begin to be able to sort companies into buckets. In this company, I can make a great profit and help the environment, and it may lead you to Tesla's stock, which multiplied seven times in 2020 alone. You may exclude from your buckets the oil companies, ExxonMobil, whose share price dropped two-thirds in three years. Okay, And so by beginning to bring measurement to ESG, and I believe that we will have regulation within the next three to five years, which will oblige every company to publish audited impact numbers within its financial statements. So you'll have two sets of statements, your normal financial ones, how much money does a company make, and the second one saying how much does it make after all its impacts on people and planet, okay? So that's where we're heading. Now, impact investment, which you asked about, measures the impact. It's tended to be in investments that focus on a specific project where you have one big impact, for example, that can be measured. It may be CO2 emissions or it may be employment or whatever. Now, impact investment has gone from zero to a trillion now in about seven years. The problem is it's not easy for the average investor to find these opportunities. They're often through venture capital funds or private equity funds and specialist lenders and so on. And so the question for our listeners today is how do I engage in such a way that I can make money and at the same time improve the state of people's lives and the planet. So we've been talking about impact investing, but you believe there's a difference between that and investing for impact. What is that difference? So for me, investing for impact is ESG. You're not measuring it, but you want the impact. The problem is the companies you invest in make all sorts of claims about the impact they're creating. Very often, Not always, but very often, some of these claims are misleading. You're blindfolded about impact, basically, without really knowing what you're investing in. You don't have transparency on impact, like the transparency on profit. 
With impact investing, at the time when you invest, you set the measures of impact that you're going to use. And what's interesting today, Phil, is if you buy a bond of a company, a quoted bond, you can find bonds where if they achieve a certain impact on the environment or on people, the rate of interest on the bond actually falls. So the companies have an incentive. An electricity company like Enel in Italy has an incentive to improve its environmental record in order to pay a lower rate of interest. You have a pharmaceutical company like Novartis. Its rate of interest falls on its $1.8 billion bond if its drugs reach a certain percentage of vulnerable people or a percentage of its sales goes to vulnerable people, to be more accurate. Ronald, I just wanted to clarify that now. A bond is like when a company is borrowing money on the market, so they put a bond out. And so what you're saying here is these bonds are actually set up and designed so that the interest rate that the company pays reduces if they're providing a positive impact. Have I got that correct? Yeah, exactly. So the company has an incentive to improve lives or the environment. Because it's um, reducing their borrowing costs. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you know how much has been invested in these bonds so far? $159 billion. I mean, you're talking very significant. <laughs> That's not bad. It sounds like measurement is very important to you. And we've talked about the measurement and that being able to look at companies and having clear metrics on what they're achieving is really important about what's going forward. And that brings me to your social impact bonds, which I believe are for governments to use to get measurable outcomes of social goods. Tell us about some of those. Okay, so the social impact bond, and there are several in Australia, is a way of investing where your return depends on the improvement in people's lives. The first one involved young prisoners. You probably know, Phil, 60% or more of young prisoners go back to jail within 18 months of their release. Okay? So this first bond, called the Peterborough Bond, after Peterborough Jail, which was uh, the focus of it, raised £5 million from foundations at that time, but today individuals and others are investing in them, to help prisoners stay out of jail. And the UK government agreed to pay for the reduction in the number because the more go back to jail, the more expensive it is for the government to take them through the law courts and to keep them in prison, right? So it's a win-win. After five years, we reduced the number going back to jail by nearly 10%. And the investors made a bit more than 3% a year on their money, which they got back. That thinking of bringing the risk of an investment the financial return on it and its impact is at the heart of the change that I think is happening in the world today and it's going to transform our world for the better. Risk return impact is what the first social impact bond brought us. Now 
There are over 200 of these across the world now in 35 countries addressing 15 different social issues. But as we were just saying, the thinking has made its way into the bond market. So you have pay for success in the bond market now to achieve impact. The big challenge, though, and that's what interests most of our listeners today, is companies that are quoted on exchanges. And so how do you bring impact measurement to them? And that's where impact accounting comes in. And I do believe that the effort at Harvard Business School has proved that impact accounting is feasible and that it gives you valuable insights about which companies you invest in. Why do I say that, Phil? If talent is going to the companies that are doing good and doing well at the same time, if consumers are looking for the products of these companies, if investors are going there, then these companies are going to perform better than companies that refuse to see impact, like their predecessors who refuse to see technology changing their world. And so for listeners looking for companies that have management that is going in this direction, so Tesla is the most notable example, but each of your listeners will have access to information about investment opportunities. It's one of the things they should look for. What's the attitude of management to this question of achieving employment impact and product impact and environmental impact that's positive? Do you think CEOs are changing already and taking these kind of things into account? I think uh, CEOs are realising now that they can't stop the tide. You know, you can't be King Canute. This is way beyond a flash in the pan. You know, when uh, we published the report for the G8 countries, and we saw that the world was changing. The ESG money was only 10 trillion then, compared to 40 trillion today. Impact investing was virtually at zero. It's a trillion today, right? In those days, some people said this could be a flash in the pan. Today, CEOs realize it's not. Now, some CEOs have tried to be ahead of the game. So about 100 companies across the world are beginning to practice some form of impact accounting measurement, okay? Some CEOs see it as a threat to their business model, don't know how to react. So if you're a fossil fuel company, if you're ExxonMobil, what do you do? And what the transparency is beginning to expose is if you're ExxonMobil and you have $38 billion of pollution from your activities every year without counting the pollution from the cars you put on the road, and Shell has 23 and BP has 13, you're in a bad place. People are going to shift from you to Shell and BP, right? So the transparency is crucially important now because... Without that transparency, you'll have companies like ExxonMobil making claims that they're delivering amazing impact in employment terms, even though they're giving you negative environmental impact. And unless you know the numbers, you won't be able to tell. Ronald, I'm I'm really keen also to talk about the social impact bonds a bit further, in that it seems to me that um, it's also looking at the way governments operate and changing the way governments operate, whereas in the past they would have a problem and they'd throw money at the problem for many years. 
and there'd be no metrics to measure any success for the programs that they're putting in place. Whereas a social impact bond, if there's investors there who have got a bit of a profit motive and um, want to see things run efficiently, they want to see metrics on the benefits of the program that they're funding. Correct. You're absolutely right. It's a way to get government to spend money more effectively because government only pays when the results have been achieved. Government hasn't measured outcomes or focused on them. When we talk about education budget, we're talking, we're going to put so many millions into schools. We're not talking, we're going to get so many people of different backgrounds to graduate from primary school and secondary school and university. Okay? We're not talking about how much did it cost us to get every one of these people to graduate and are we doing better than we did before or better than other countries. Now, it's taken a while, it's taken longer than I expected, Phil, for government to understand that it really needs this, that this is a way of bringing measurement to the whole of government expenditure. When you start measuring for some outcomes, then you begin to focus on outcomes rather than activities and begin to measure for more. And what you discover is this is just a better way to achieve your goals as a political leader. You get the data, why something is successful and why it isn't. Uh, you benefit from the knowledge you've had next time you enter into another contract. Somebody else took the risk to invest to achieve your goal. You pay them a reasonable rate of interest, but it's dependent on success. So I've been surprised how long it's taken governments to understand the value of this. And there have been now serious reports written by the Oxford School of Government and others about how serious a tool this can be uh, for governments. I was interested in the story about the gym that um, was run with a, a bond. Can you tell us about the gym in underprivileged areas? No. So the gym didn't come out of a social impact bond fund. It came out of an impact venture capital fund. And the idea there was gyms were being set up in middle-class areas, but they weren't being set up in poor areas. Now, people working in poorer areas are often on night shift, okay? And they don't have a lot of money. So you needed a gym that was open 24 hours a day and that was cheap. And so Bridges Ventures helped to set up a company called The Gym, focusing on these areas. And the theory of change, as we call it, was, look, if people exercise more, they're going to be healthier, you know? And so by opening these gyms, you're helping people who are less well-off to catch up in terms of health uh, with those who are better off, who tend to have longer lifespans and better health. There was one other thing that I wanted to cover. It's peace in the Middle East. You believe that these kind of metrics and thinking about investing can uh, help lead to this? So my efforts in the Middle East started at the time of the birth of impact investment, 2003, but obviously they were designed to achieve impact. 
And I set up uh, with a very uh, dear and close partner, Sir Harry Solomon, the Portland Trust in 2003 to work on the economic dimension of peace. Everybody, Phil, is worried about security and political negotiation, but very few people have worried about the economic drivers of peace. Like if people have a future economically, it makes them look at the political solution in a different way, right? If they have the opportunity to improve their kids' lives, then it puts a different slant on what they're prepared to accept. As it turns out, your comment is absolutely right. We have introduced social impact bonds, both in Palestine and in Israel. In Palestine, the first one was in the area of diabetes prevention, particularly among women living in refugee camps who have had a chance to avoid obesity by working with somebody who was advising them on nutrition and exercise and so on. And the second one was for, or is, for creating employment among youth, training people for jobs. I think in countries where the financial discipline is less at the level of government and business and so on, that these development impact bonds, as we call them, are a very important tool for us to use. So, Ronald, tell us about your book and uh, where people can find it and more information about impact investing and um, what you're working on. So, About uh, three years ago, Phil, I began to see very clearly that the world was going in the direction of risk, return, and impact when making investment and business decisions. But as I spoke to people, when they heard the word impact, some of them thought it was philanthropy, some of them didn't know what it meant, and what's happening is really fundamental and it can be accelerated by each and every one of us on this podcast. We can uh, convince our governments to bring transparency to the impacts of companies by obliging companies to publish impact accounts, impact-weighted accounts, as I have called them. We can, through our consumption, put pressure on companies to amend their ways. And of course, as talent, if we're working for a company, we can influence them to go in the direction of measuring their impacts, which is where you have to start. And if you're an entrepreneur, then you can define a business model that helps you to solve a major issue while making a ton of money. You know, a unicorn is a venture that becomes worth a billion dollars. I mentioned in the book that an impact unicorn is one that also helps a billion people improve their lives. All of these ideas, if they're understood, are capable of improving our world, improving our growth, and the inclusion of a wider number of people in the prosperity that our economic system creates. And so I wrote the book. It's been a bestseller in the UK and in the United States. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It's just been picked in Germany as one of the top 10 business school of the year. We'll see whether it wins or not. You can buy it on Amazon or in your local bookshop. And by the way, the cost of the 
ebook I have kept as low as I can. If you can access Amazon US, it's less than $3. Well, I'll put links in the blog post to where people can purchase and find this book and also to your website. My mind is brimming with more questions. I could, <laughs> I could hit you for hours about this, but I, I better let you go, Sir Ronald. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and meeting you. Likewise, Phil. Thank you. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.